Morning. Morning. If you uh, turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 15 and we'll begin reading at verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Lord him, all you people. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. (coughs) Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient, in mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I have also been much hindered from coming to you. But now, no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are and, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. 
Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This morning, we continue our study of Paul's letter to the Romans by looking at the second half of chapter 15. And given that much of chapter 16 is taken up with Paul expressing personal greetings and a few, and a few final thoughts, the end of chapter 15 is pretty much represents the conclusion to this magnificent epistle. Now, by studying the second half of this chapter, it seems to reveal three important lessons about God. In verses 8 through 13, we learn about the faithfulness of God. We learn that God makes and keeps his promises. In verses 14 to 16, we learn something of the discipline of God. And in the final section, 17 through 33, we learn some important lessons about the blessings of God. However, before looking in more detail into these lessons, we need first to remind ourselves once again as to the reason that Paul wrote his letter to the Romans. You will no doubt recall that Paul wrote to settle a dispute that had arisen among the congregation between some Christians of Jewish origin and some from among the Gentiles. The argument that was at the root of this trouble, which threatened to split the church, appears to have been due to a growing belief among the Gentiles that the Gentile church had replaced Israel as the people of God. The outworking of circumstances over a number of years seems to have suggested and confirmed this belief. At the time of writing, and it was only 25 to 30 years since the death, resurrection and ascension of Christ, during that time, the church which began as exclusively made up of Jews, was now made up predominantly of Gentiles. The experience of those who faithfully proclaimed the gospel was that Gentiles were far more interested and receptive to it. The Jews, by contrast, seemed unnaturally resistant. Consequently, the proportion of Gentiles compared to Jews was continually increasing and there was no sign that this trend was likely to change. Now, this trend was typical of the whole region in general and Rome was no exception. However, there was a further turn of events in Rome which appeared to confirm this belief that Israel had been replaced by the Gentile church. In AD 49, the Roman Empire Claudius expelled all Jews from Rome and this included Christians of Jewish origin. The church left behind would therefore have suddenly become exclusively Gentile. Without the Jews, who would have almost certainly occupied most of the leadership roles, the Gentiles would have had to learn fast in order to continue the work. And in the absence of the Jewish Christians, God mercifully blessed the faithful work of the Gentiles and the church consequently prospered and grew. Now, pride is a terrible thing and it would appear that it got the better of some of the Gentiles 
confirming in their minds that the Gentiles had replaced Israel as God's people. However, one of the problems with basing one's beliefs on the outworking of events rather than the unchanging word of God is what does one do when those events suddenly change? In AD 54, Claudius was murdered and was succeeded by his stepson Nero. Unlike Claudius, Nero did not regard the presence of Jews in Jerusalem as a threat. And so soon after coming to power, the Jews began to return and with them came the Jewish Christians. However, rather than being a cause for celebration, their return to the church was perceived as something of a threat that inevitably became a source of tension. They appear to have received an uneasy welcome and integration back into the life of the church was extremely difficult. Some of the Gentiles had adopted an arrogant, haughty and conceited attitude. They appear to have been willing to show hospitality, uh, they appear to have been unwilling to show hospitality and were willfully unsympathetic to cultural sensitivities over days and diets. So Paul wrote to address this decidedly sad and potentially explosive situation. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul began by reminding them in detail of the gospel that united them before he dealt with the issue head on. And as you read the letter as a whole, the godly wisdom with which it was written becomes increasingly evident. You see, he did not begin by confronting those Gentiles who held the mistaken view that the Gentile church would replace Israel. His intent was clear. Realising the sensitivity of the issue and the strong feelings it generated, his intention was that they would hold together while he challenged and defeated this errant viewpoint. He realised that if he simply rushed in to confronting this area, it would lead to disillusionment and a hard-hearted, stubborn refusal to listen to his argument and recognise the truth. So Paul devoted chapters 1 to 8 to giving them a thorough reminder and a detailed explanation of the gospel before he addressed the issue through chapters 9 and 11. And having dealt with the issue, he then focuses his attention on how they were to practically move forward in the light of all that he had said. And the clear emphasis through chapters 12 to 15 was therefore concerned with the preservation and maintenance of unity. They needed to learn to think differently, to think with godly wisdom, or as Paul put it, to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. They needed to recognise each other as mutually dependent members of one body, regardless of ethnicity or cultural practice. You see, whether a person is born a Jew or a Gentile, they were made in the image of God, and Christ has died to save them. And they needed to understand this and behave accordingly. Last time we studied the section, chapter 14 through to chapter 15, verse 7 in which Paul addressed two groups whom he identified as the weak, that is, people who had scruples over days and diets, and the strong, people who did not share these convictions. And in particular, he wrote boldly concerning their attitudes and behaviour towards one another, and made an appeal to both groups to stop judging one another anymore. However, 
most of his comments were directed towards the strong. He instructed them that they should seek to build up and edify their weak brethren, rather than destroying their faith by exercising their freedom in matters pertaining to food, without regard for the sensitivities they had. Rather than pleasing themselves, they should look to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not please himself, but rather became a servant, as Paul wrote at the beginning of today's reading in verse 8. Let's just read verse 8 once more. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that is the Jews, for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Now in using the word servant to describe Jesus, Paul is in all likelihood identifying Jesus with the servant that we read about in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, on some occasions, the servant is referring to the nation of Israel, whereas on others, the servant is clearly an individual who we know as the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is probably most evident on what has become known as the fifth servant song, in which we read, which we read in uh, chapter 52, verse 13, right the way through to the end of chapter 53. So when Paul described Jesus as a servant to the circumcision, or Jews, it is highly likely that he had the fifth servant song in mind when he wrote it. Particularly since in earlier in chapter 15, in verse 3, he wrote, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And in the fifth servant song, we read an account of the extent to which Jesus suffered the reproaches of men. So let's just turn to Isaiah 53 and just read some of that um, beautiful song just to, uh, just to let that sink in, just to let the word speak to us on that. I'm going to begin uh, reading from Isaiah 53 verse 4. I'm going to go to the end of the chapter. So just, let's just listen. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He has taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had not done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days." 
and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labour of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, without wanting to intrude on Brian's teaching too much, Paul's letter to the Philippians confirms what we've just read and that his people's attitude should be like that of Christ Jesus, who took the form of a bondservant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in verse 8, Paul wrote that Jesus became a servant of the circumcision for the truth of God. For it is in the life of Jesus that we see the true nature of God. The Apostle John wrote, We beheld his glory. And in the life of Jesus, we learn the true meaning of love. For God is love. We learn that it is a sacrificial love. Of one who bore the reproaches of men in order to reconcile man to God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. His desire is for us to be reconciled into right relationship with him. Now in that verse, Paul continued, Jesus has become a servant of the circumcision to confirm the promises he made to the fathers. That means the promises he made to the patriarchs. Now this brings us to the first of the lessons that I want to focus on this morning. The truth that God is utterly faithful. He is a God who makes and keeps his promises. You see, it was to the circumcision, it was to the Jews, that revelation concerning God was given through Moses. It was through Moses that the books of the law were given. And it is through those books that we learn that mankind was made in the image of God to live in a perfect world. And it is through those books that we learn how death entered the world on account of the sin of Adam and that God promised a redeemer. And it was to the Jews that God revealed his promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him and his descendants. And it was on account of the Jews that God instituted the first Passover which led to their rescue from Egyptian captivity. This event was to become an annual celebration to remind them of this fact and also to point them to the Lord Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfilment of Passover. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the fulfilment of all those promises, and indeed many others recorded in the Old Testament, had taken place within the living memory of some of those who were the recipients of this letter. Now the promise made to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him should have alerted those who loved and read the scriptures as to the future inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. And notice its inclusion into and not replacement of. 
And so in verses 9 to 12, Paul goes on to illustrate this by quoting the relevant scriptures as to how God's word further confirmed this. A note, these scriptures are taken from all three sections of the Hebrew Bible. They're taken from the law, they're taken from the prophets and from the writings. In verse 10, he quotes from the law. He's quoting Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. With confirms inclusion into and not replacement of Israel. In verse 9, he quotes from the prophets, the former prophets. That is, he's quoting from 2 Samuel 22, verse 50. For this reason, I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And in verse 11, he quotes from the Psalms, the writings. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Lord him, all ye peoples. Psalm 117, verse 1. Now, the actions communicated in each of these verses, we had sing, rejoice, praise, and Lord, they are all responses. Responses to a known blessing. And in verse 9, Paul has revealed what that blessing was, that they had received and experienced his mercy. The Gentiles will sing praises and rejoice in the name of the Lord as a response to experiencing his mercy. It is a response to known love that is a consequence of their salvation. And this Paul confirms in verse 12. Quoting Isaiah chapter 11 verse 10, Paul makes clear that the inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God was prophesied hundreds of years earlier. We read in verse 12, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now, the root of Jesse, well, we know Jesse was the father of David. The root of Jesse will reign over the Gentiles. The root of Jesse will therefore be a king, and the Gentiles ruled over by him will therefore be in his kingdom. The root of Jesse, we know, is Jesus Christ, the son of David, and his kingdom is the kingdom of God. So the first lesson we learn from this section is that God is utterly faithful. He makes and keeps his promises. Therefore, he is the source of all hope, as Paul concludes in verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice that verse 13 is a prayer made by Paul on behalf of his readers. Do you ever find that that when you want to pray for someone, you don't know what to pray? Well, why not ask the God of hope to fill that person with joy and peace? God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is the source of joy, peace and hope. We cannot produce these in ourselves, Only he can, for he is the source of them. So having considered God's faithfulness, we now move on to the second aspect of our study this morning as we turn our attention to consider something of the nature of God's discipline in verses 14 to 16.
Having outlined earlier that Paul wrote Romans to preserve unity within the church, the resolution of this issue would clearly involve matters of discipline. He wrote to settle a dispute that required him to write a word of correction for people on both sides of the argument. His motive was to bring about a change for the better, to bring a successful resolution, not to humiliate or to blame, but to resolve and restore. He wrote to transform a situation in which there was anger, strife and tension into one of cooperation, love and peace. He stated that he had written boldly on some points. Although the letter was written for the purpose of correction, it was not a 7,000 word telling off. It was not all about discipline. In Hebrews 12 verse 11 we read, All discipline for the moment seems not joyful but sorrowful, yet those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now this verse teaches us that although the purpose of discipline is beneficial, the experience of it may not be pleasant. Although the Christian life is a life of discipleship, it is not continual and ongoing discipline all the time. If it were so, the Christian life would indeed be a sorrowful and joyless experience. The discipline spoken of here lasts for the moment. It lasts for a period of time in order to produce a beneficial change with respect to a particular issue or situation. Now, the discipline about which Paul has written boldly on some points has a context. In verse 16, Paul reveals that the discipline he has given is in the context of him being a minister of the gospel. So the context for this discipline is the gospel. It's a discipline given in the context of good news. Again, we noted earlier that a considerable portion of this letter was devoted to deepening the reader's understanding of the gospel. And it is in these chapters, chapters 1 to 8, that we are reminded that although we are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, Our God justifies the ungodly on the basis of faith. And he does so on the basis of faith in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. As Paul writes, the Lord Jesus Christ was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. And the consequence of this faith is that we have been brought into a right relationship with God in which we know peace. At the beginning of chapter 5, he writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And this grace in which we stand is explained further in chapter 8 when we learn that it involves us being adopted into God's family. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, for these are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And since we are children of God, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
Therefore, the context in which Paul spoke boldly on some points, the context for his discipline is from a position of belonging. It's from a position of acceptance that corrects and does not condemn. Its purpose is to build up, to edify, to bring about a change for the better, for the good of all. Its purpose is a blessing and an expression of God's love for his children. Now the third point concerning this discipline is that it is given with a confident expectation and hope of success. In this letter we have read how Paul rebuked them for their judgmental attitude towards each other and how he rebuked some of the Gentile believers for their lack of consideration for the sensitivities of their brethren and for adopting a superior, looking-down-their-noses sort of attitude towards Jewish people, both believers and unbelievers. Yet these are people that he has expressed in chapter 1 an eager desire to travel hundreds of miles to visit and have fellowship with, honestly believing that this will be a great mutual blessing to them both. Now I believe he can say so in all, sincer- in all sincerity because he knows they are believers with a genuine faith and, he, and as such they will see the errors of their ways and respond accordingly. And this is why Paul expresses the, this confident expectation in verse 14 when he writes, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. This is not a punitive discipline that writes people off. It's the discipline that has a confident expectation of learning, restoration and growth. And the last aspect of discipline I want to consider is that the purpose is to bring about a beneficial change so that they become useful in God's service. Paul has, in chapter 12, verse 1, instructed them to present themselves as a living sacrifice. And we become an acceptable sacrifice as a consequence of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, forming God's righteous character within us that prepares us for service. Verse 15 and 16. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles ministering the gospel of God that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now Paul understands this by experience. He understands that it's a great privilege and blessing to be used by God to accomplish his purposes. God graciously invites us to make ourselves available to him in order that he can accomplish his his plans and purposes through us. And he does so not because he needs us, but because it's through our active participation in his plans and purposes that we really get to know him. It's as he works in us and through us that our relationship with him deepens and grows. And this is the blessing that Paul gives testimony to in the final section, verses 17 through 33, in which he speaks of what Christ has accomplished through him. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, he writes in verse 18. For Paul, 
the knowledge of Christ that he has gained through the experience of Christ working in him and through him was far more precious than anything the world could offer. For him, there was no greater blessing. Again, quoting from Philippians, Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Now when you read through the book of Acts from chapter 13 onwards, it reads as an account of where Paul went, what Paul said, what Paul did. But from Paul's perspective, it wasn't about what he did. It was about what Christ accomplished through him. And it's vital that we understand in serving Christ, it is about what he does in us and through us. Otherwise, the Christian life becomes all about what we do. And it leads us to becoming worn out and heavy laden, defeated and dejected, feeling that we have to achieve the impossible to please God. Now, when we begin to feel like this, we need to realise that this did not come from God. In fact, it's a direct contradiction of what Jesus taught. Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we need to learn to reject any thought or sense of feeling that we need to achieve great things for Christ in and of ourselves. No, we need to simply go to him and ask him to give us his yoke, which is easy, and his burden, which is light. We simply need to make ourselves available to him in order that he can work in us and through us. Now, I cannot tell you how this will be outworked in your life. You may be called to an upfront ministry or you may be called into a supporting role that takes place in the background and goes largely unnoticed. The book of Acts clearly teaches that some were called into practical service serving tables in order to release others for prayer and ministry of the word. According to Paul's testimony given here, Christ worked through him to perform a pioneering ministry throughout the region, extending from Jerusalem to Illyricum, where the gospel had not been previously preached. Now this is a vast region, particularly when you consider the modes of of travel available in those days. So where was Illyricum? Well, that region today is made up of countries like Albania and Bosnia, Croatia, Serbia countries that a few years ago made up the old Yugoslavia. So it was a vast region. Clearly, Christ accomplished great things through Paul. And the fact that Paul's work was accompanied by signs and wonders confirms that it was because God was working through him by the power of the Holy, by the power of the Spirit of God. See, we live in a world that was not only created by God, it continues to be sustained by him. And he established laws of science and mathematics, what we call the laws of nature, by which our universe functions. It's because of these laws that we can do science. However, there are occasions when it serves God's purpose to suspend or supersede these laws, and we call these events miracles. Therefore, miracles are evidence that God is at work, for only he has the authority to override the laws of nature which he instituted. 
Now, Paul could not simply perform miracles when he felt like it. Miracles were performed through him only when he was moved by the Spirit of God. One example of this is when Eutychus was restored to life, having fallen from an upstairs window. However, in Philippians, we read about an occasion when the faithful Epaphroditus became very ill indeed. In fact, Paul was so worried that he thought at one point he might die. Now, if Paul had possessed the power to heal in and of himself, he would have had no need to be so concerned. It was God who eventually healed Epaphroditus in his own time, to the great relief of Paul. So the first lesson we learn from this, this section of the passage concerning blessings is, that, is the blessing that comes through serving. The second lesson one can discern is the blessing that comes through fellowship. In verse 23, Paul reiterates the sincere desire to visit them he made in his introduction in chapter 1. He then goes on to explain the legitimate reasons that have prevented him from doing so, even though it had been his constant and sincere prayer that God would grant him the opportunity to visit them. The reason he had not been able to were firstly that God had given him the task of preaching the gospel through the region extending from Jerusalem to Illyricum mentioned earlier. However, at the time of writing, Paul was convinced that he had now completed that task and that his work was no longer preventing him from doing so. The second reason he hadn't visited was that since his aim was to preach the gospel only where Christ had not been named, it would not have been appropriate to come to Rome since the church had already been established. Now, his aim had not changed. He revealed later on in the passage, that his future work was to preach the gospel in Spain since no one had done so yet. And this would provide Paul with the opportunity to finally visit Rome without feeling that he would be building on another man's foundation. You see, if Paul travelled to Spain, he and his companions would need to take all of their provisions and resources with them. But they would be limited as to how much they could physically carry on such a journey. And given the distance involved, the only way this would be practically possible would be to stop off somewhere about half distance and replenish those resources. And Rome would be the ideal place. Now in the verses where he expressed his desire to visit, it is clearly evident how important such a visit is to him. In chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 he wrote this, For God is my witness, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. And in chapter 15, verse 23, he speaks of having a great desire for many years to meet them. And in expressing this sincere desire, he confidently expects they will each be mutually blessed. In 15, verse 32, he writes that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be, fresh, be refreshed with you. Paul understands that great mutual blessing comes through fellowship and he is prepared to travel hundreds of miles to share in it. The fact that Paul understands the blessing of fellowship is further confirmed by the sheer number of greetings that he wrote in chapter 16. The final lesson we learn concerning blessing is that the blessings and gifts we have received from God are to be shared for the benefit of all. 
Paul explained that although the way is now clear for him to visit, there is still one very important task he has to perform before he can begin that journey. The church in Jerusalem had fallen on hard times and they lacked the physical resources to adequately provide for themselves. Learning of their plight, Christians in Macedonia and Achaia, regions now in modern-day Greece, made a collection and Paul was given the responsibility to deliver the gift. These Christians, who would have been predominantly Gentiles, understood that since they had benefited from the spiritual blessing first given to the Jews, it was only right that they should share that, that material blessing with them. Now, I believe that Paul wrote this merely to explain the delay in his visit. However, whether intended or otherwise, there was a particularly pertinent lesson here for his readers. If the Gentile Christians had such love for Jewish brethren who they have never met, shouldn't the Gentile Christians in Rome show the same practical love for the Jewish brethren they knew and who lived among them? So that brings us virtually to the end of chapter 15. And God willing, we will look at chapter 16 next time. And although it's largely made up of personal greetings, there are valuable lessons that can be gleaned from it. But before closing this morning, allow me just to summarise the main points from today. We've considered three important lessons that teach us about God. Firstly, the increasing population of Gentiles among the people of God that Paul's first readers were witnessing should not have come as a surprise, for the salvation of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God had been clearly prophesied and recorded in all three sections of the Hebrew Scriptures. The first recipients of Paul's letters were witnessing the fulfilment of these prophecies made centuries earlier, thus confirming that God is utterly faithful. He makes and he keeps his promises. Secondly, we considered some lessons to do with the discipline of God. Having been saved into his kingdom, his people will experience his discipline since he reigns over them. However, this discipline is always administered in the context of acceptance and belonging and its purpose is to correct and restore so that people are made useful in his service. And we learned also that his service is neither heavy nor burdensome. And lastly, we consider lessons about the blessings that God gives us. God calls us into his service, not because he needs us, but in order to bless us. He invites us to actively cooperate with him in accomplishing his purposes because in doing so, our knowledge of him and our relationship with him deepens and grows. He also wants us to understand that since we've been adopted into his family, that there is a great mutual blessing in sharing fellowship with our brothers and sisters, even those we haven't yet met. And finally, he wants us to understand that the blessings and gifts that we have personally received were given for the benefit and edification of all. And I pray that we will consider diligently these lessons and seek to apply them in our Christian walk. May God bless you all.